You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Good morning, EBF. Our scripture reading for this morning is Ephesians 5, 18 to 33. So please open your Bibles with me to Ephesians 5, 18 through 33. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to, the, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in fear of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ in the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, EBF family, and thank you to Catherine for doing our scripture reading this morning. And congratulations, Catherine, on your recent engagement What a fitting passage to to read as you reflect on the joy that is before you with that. And so we're we're so grateful. Hey, church family, this past week we were, uh, as many of us, felt so shocked and and saddened by the shootings that took place in the Atlanta area. We stand with our Asian and Asian American sisters, brothers, and neighbors in light of the rise in racial violence and hate crimes. And in this time of mourning, we pray that Christ would be so very real, that he would pour out his perfect peace. And may we pray for the families of the victims that God would bear them up and comfort them. Let us pray for the survivors of these shootings to be strengthened and to be made whole. And let us pray for justice to be done to the perpetrators of such violence. May we as a people, may we weep with those who weep. Lift up the honor and dignity of every human being made in the image of God. Would you join me in praying along along these lines? Our Father, we come to you in this time of deep sorrow. 
asking that you would bind up the brokenhearted. In this time, Lord, when we see increasing violence directed toward our Asian and Asian American sisters and brothers and neighbors, we cry out to you. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We ask, how long, O Lord, how long will these violent acts continue? How long, O Lord, will such hate be expressed? Father, we turn to you and ask that you would make yourself known among the survivors of such violence, among the families of the victims. Would you pour out your peace, the peace that is beyond anything that we can dream of. Provide comfort and hope where there seems to be none. And would the perpetrators of such violence and hate be brought to justice. Father, help us to weep with those who weep. May we be a people who fight for the honor and dignity of all of your image bearers, Lord, every man, woman, and child. Lord, root out the hate in our own hearts. Turn the magnifying glass upon our own lives and our churches and the ways that we have knowingly or unknowingly fueled such hate. Lord, may our trust be in you and in you alone. May we be a people who walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so, God, would you illuminate your holy word to us this morning? Illuminate it by your spirit. May we hear your word proclaimed. Remind us of the hope that is possible because of Christ's self-giving, self-sacrificial love displayed ultimately on the cross. And give us a vision of where we're headed. And that day, O oh Lord, when you will make all things new for your own glory. We pray this in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. The best seat in the house. That's what I often get to enjoy every time I officiate a wedding. And where does that term even come from anyway? Officiate. It, it, it sounds like an athletic contest of some sort. Anyway, I, I love my vantage point and the subtle cues that I get to witness. The, the exchange of glances between the couple, the nervous laughter, the reassuring hand squeeze, the, the head nodding in agreement. You know, I should probably start wearing a, a GoPro, especially in this age of attending weddings virtually. People could, people could check out the pastor cam. But the words that we find here in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, I often get to speak over couples at the altar, and I get to expound their significance to these couples on their wedding day. At that moment in time, there is so much promise, there is so much potential, so much euphoria, and I wonder and I pray, Will they take these words to heart? A whole book could be written on this passage. And guess what? It has been. The book, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller is one that I highly recommend. But you'll have to bear with me as I try to keep this to 35-ish minutes. Sadly, this passage has been one that has been greatly misunderstood, that has generated vigorous debate and at times has been even wielded as a weapon. My prayer is that we would approach this text humbly, remembering that there is no other relationship that so mirrors how God relates to us and his purpose for us. 
where do we even begin in exploring this magnificent theme? As we saw last week, Ephesians 5 verse 21 functions as a hinge, functions as a hinge between walking in wisdom in verses 15 through 21, but then also to Paul's instructions here in verses 22 through 33. So let's actually dive in. We're going to cover something that we looked at a little bit last week, but beginning with spirit-filled submission in verse 21. In Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, Paul calls us to watch where we're going by making the most of every opportunity, growing in our understanding of God's will, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And what that looks like, he shows using five participles, five practices that have both a vertical and a horizontal component. The last of those is found in verse 21, which is this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Spirit-filled submission. The word for submitting here means to arrange under. It was used in ancient times to describe an ordered array of soldiers in an army under a superior officer. Being filled with the Holy Spirit involves mutual submission to fellow believers with an underlying motivation of reverence and awe for Christ. How should we live out our mutual submission in the body of Christ? Paul goes on in verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 9, to provide three relational examples in what's known traditionally as a household code. We're not talking about a garage door code here. We're talking about a standard form of exhortation that was used by early philosophers that discussed husband and wife, father, child, and master-slave relationships. Paul borrows this form of writing. But as we'll see, he flips the expectations of the ancient world. Among Paul's readers, there would have been many believers, though, who would not have necessarily fit into these particular categories. Like widows, freed men and women, perhaps orphans. The three pairs of relationships that are found here, these three pairs of relationships are They could be considered more broad categories of household life. They're not necessarily representative of everyone's experience. And so, in a similar way, we recognize that there is a wide array of people and experiences that are present even with us today that are are viewing this together. Could be engaged, widowed, perhaps blended families, married but though struggling, divorced, and single. It's worth pointing out that Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 promotes singleness as a praiseworthy option in service to Christ. But no matter where we're coming from, there is truth to be found in God's Word. The marriage ideal is to be held up and celebrated, and the most beautiful picture of Christ's self-giving, self-sacrificing love for His church, I believe, is found in these verses. As Paul launches into this household code here, he begins with a word to wives in verses 22 through 24. A word to wives. Over the course of these verses, he's going to provide the key instruction, the reason for that instruction, illustrate it, and then apply it. 
And so the instruction first is found in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Remember, Paul is directing this toward those who are filled with the Spirit. He presents marriage as a Spirit-filled relationship. And one thing worth pointing out is there is actually no verb in the original Greek in verse 22. It is actually borrowed from verse 21, that of submitting. And it has to mean the same thing in verse 21 as it is here, as it is borrowed. But this word submit, one one key thing to point out is that it is in what's called the middle voice. And what that means is that it emphasizes that this is something that the wife does freely and voluntarily. I think that this is captured well in how the NIV translates this when it says, submit yourselves. Unfortunately, some have twisted this verse to mean subjection or, or even subjugation, but that is not what Paul pictures here. Submission is a yielding of one's rights for another, patterned after the example of Christ, a reflection of the gospel, and should grace the lives of every believer. Such submission should be directed to their own husbands. Did you notice that? To your own husbands rather than to all men. And the motivation for the wife's voluntary submission is revealed in the phrase, as to the Lord. It's important to realize that this is not a one-to-one correspondence, as if the husband is the Lord of the wife. Not at all. Similar to the phrase, out of reverence for Christ in verse 21, the Christian wife's submission is seen as one aspect of her service to Christ. In what follows, Paul gives the reason wives should submit to their husbands. Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Paul uses head in this context as having responsibility for. He later explains the husband's responsibility in loving, in sacrificing, and in nurturing his wife. Christ as the head of the church and the church as his body first appears in Ephesians 1, verses 22 through 23. It says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This does not mean that the wife is the husband's body. Nor does it imply that the husband is the savior of his wife. Paul is using a metaphor here a figure of speech or an analogy that provides better perspective. But even in calling Christ Savior, Paul engages in subversion. For only Caesar was to be declared Savior. Paul provides a helpful illustration of what he means in verse 24 when he writes, it says this, Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Look at that first part of that verse. The church submits to Christ as we look to our head for guidance, as we live by his ways, experience his presence and love, and receive from him and respond to him in gratitude. That illustration of Christ 
the church submitting to Christ then flows into the application that Paul provides in the rest of verse 24. So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What does it mean to submit to one's husband in everything? I think this is influenced by the phrase in verse 22, as to the Lord. Wives are not to blindly obey their husbands, nor do things that are clearly contrary to God's commands. The in everything here is that which Christ himself would ask of any believer, including the husband. If it cannot be done to the Lord, it should not be done. With his word to wives now complete, Paul spends three times as much space giving a word to husbands, a word to husbands. And here too, he will provide the instruction, illustrate it, and apply it. But embedded in that application are two more illustrations as well. It's okay if you're not tracking all of that. We'll, we'll unpack it here. Paul's fundamental instruction to husbands is, Husbands, love your wives. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. If Paul had written in line with the conventions of the day, he might have said something like, Husbands, subjugate your wives. Make your wives submit. But that's not what he says. Nor does he say something like, Husbands, exercise your headship. No. He says, love your wives. A radical instruction that subverted the values of the culture. Love is not simply an emotional response, but an act of the will. Rather than being guided by self-interest, the husband is to place his wife's well-being first and give himself in care for her. He makes clear here that, that marriage is not a one-sided submission on the part of wives. No, it is a reciprocal relationship. After all, both husbands and wives as followers of Jesus Christ are called to love, as we see in Ephesians 5 verse 2, and to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in Ephesians 5 verse 21. One way of picturing this is, think of a ballroom dance where the husband gracefully leads and the wife responds to his gentle cues in a flowing and dazzling and delicate dance. That is marriage. That is marriage. And so to drive his point home, Paul provides a lengthy illustration that is based on Christ's magnificent love for his church. Look at the rest of verse 25. Let's actually all the way back. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. These are some of the most magnificent verses in all of Scripture surrounding Christ and his church. And what Paul does here is provides five actions that move from the past to the present to the future. Five, five actions that, that Christ takes up. First, that Christ loved the church. There's no higher bar that could be set for how husbands are to love their wives than this statement right here. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So second, Christ gave himself up for the church. Christ gave himself up for the church. Jesus willingly gave his life on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. What wondrous love is this? What section of books would you look for for marriage advice? Say if you were at a bookstore, would you look in the self-help section? Would you look under the relationship section or ethics? Try the atonement. Husbands are called to love their wives in a way that is modeled after Christ's self-giving, self-sacrificing love on the cross. Think about this. Death by crucifixion was one of the most shameful acts in Paul's day. Hebrews 12 verse 2 reminds us that Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame. In the first century, a man would be expected to exercise power over his wife or or experience shame in the eyes of society if he doesn't. Instead, Jesus invites every follower to take up their cross and be willing to suffer shame and ridicule. Knowing, though, ultimately that there is an eternal reward that awaits us for serving others in such a way. Third, Christ sanctifies the church. Christ not only sets the church apart as his bride, but he also purifies the church of her sin. Notice that it is not believers that make themselves holy here. That is Christ's work. Fourth, Christ cleanses the church, as the text says, by the washing of water with the word. This could be a reference to the bridal bath that is found in Ezekiel 16 verse 9, Within Judaism, it was called the sanctification of the bride. Or it could be a reference to water baptism. But regardless, Christ spiritually cleanses his bride through the word of the gospel. Hear how this is described in Titus 3 verse 5. It says, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Christ loved the church, gave himself up, sanctifies the church, cleanses the church, and fifth, Christ will present the church to himself in splendor. He will present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. A good friend of ours tells the story about how on her wedding day, it was nearing the time to step into the actual church or into the sanctuary. And one of her bridesmaids, I believe it was, um, reached out to apply lipstick to the bride one last time. And the end of the lipstick broke off. And you can imagine the horror as all of her 
bridesmaids around her watched this bright lipstick bounce and roll down her dress, staining it in the process. Thankfully, a quick-thinking bridesmaid applied some 409. Yes, I'm talking about the cleaning solution 409. And thankfully, that got the stains out. I'm not promoting a certain cleaning product here. No, I'm, the point is that nothing, no spot or blemish will get in the way of the church's unequaled beauty when Christ presents her to himself. This is often hard to see, though, when the church today seems to be in disarray, seems to be stained and, and in rags. Well, in the verses that follow, Paul provides additional application. Starting in verse 28, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Here Paul restates his initial instruction to love, but with a twist. It's as if he applies the golden rule to marriage. That of the words of Jesus, do to others what you would have them do to you. This could also be seen as an extension of the great commandment, that of loving our neighbors as ourselves. Who is our nearest and dearest neighbor? Our spouse. Embedded in this application section is the illustration of how we care for our own bodies. And generally speaking, we take care of our bodies. We provide food and clothing, shelter at a minimum. Paul doesn't seem to be thinking here about the, the training of the body for athletic competition or, or chiseling the physique. He, he uses that sort of language elsewhere. Instead, he pictures treating the body with tenderness and gentleness. A second illustration that is, that is sort of embedded here as well is that, is that of Christ caring for his body, the church. Paul actually weaves together here the images of the bride of Christ and the body of Christ to show how the church should nourish, how, how, Christ, should, how Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. And so after this word to wives and then the word to husbands, Paul turns in the last few verses about how they are united together, united together. He does so by providing validation, a supporting conclusion, and a final summary. That, val that validation is found in his quoting of Genesis 2, verse 24, which he does in verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2, 24. It is the most foundational passage in the Old Testament on God's plan for marriage. This takes place before the fall, and it is a stunning image of unity, that of physical, spiritual, and emotional oneness, the highest ideal of marriage the world has ever known, is found here in Genesis 2, verse 24. In the conclusion in verse 32, Paul highlights 
that this is a profound mystery, the profound mystery of marriage. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage provides a living parable of the relationship between Christ and his church. It is a beautiful and mysterious model for the church's union with Christ. Paul uses three images of the church in the book of Ephesians. The body, the building, and the bride. The body, the building, and the bride. And all three of these images emphasize our mysterious union with Christ. Well, in the final summary, in verse 33, Paul recaps his instructions to husbands and wives. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This time around, he focuses on husbands first and instructs them, For the third time, in case we didn't get it the first or second time, I guess, for the third time to love their wives. But in recapping the wife's spirit-filled submission, he surprisingly writes this. He writes, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word for respect here is the verb form of the word rendered reverence in verse 21. We are now brought full circle with reverence and respect describing her recognition of her husband's role and responsibility in marriage. So, church, we need to mine the depths of this profound mystery. For all too often, we look to traditions and customs as the basis for our relationships and roles in the family. But instead, we need to look first and foremost to the example of Christ and what he has revealed in his word. How should wives submit to their husbands? The text gives us five or the text gives us seven ways at least. How should wives submit to their husbands? First, wives should submit voluntarily. This is an appeal to free and responsible persons. It must not be something that is forced or coerced or brought about by the by the breaking of the human will. No. Nor does it imply that the wife is a lesser partner. Unfortunately, this passage has been, has been wielded as a weapon when instead it should be used to lift up and honor women. Second, wives should submit exclusively. It is limited, as the text says, to your own husbands rather than to all men in general. Third, wives should submit worshipfully. It should be done to the Lord and out of reverence for Christ, as all submission to one another in the body of Christ should be. Fourth, wives should submit understandingly. We must remember the fundamental equality of all men and women who have been equally created in the image of God. In addition to this should be the realization of how God has ordered relationships in marriage and the recognition of the husband's role as head. Sadly, too many husbands display harsh and harmful headship rather than Christ-like sacrificial headship. Fifth, wives should submit consistently. As to the Lord, limit submission to what a holy God would ask of his follower. 
The phrase, in everything, includes all spheres of life, as long as it is in keeping with a life that is lived to the Lord. Wives must not submit if it means disobedience to God. Like Peter says in Acts 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. Rather than blindly obeying His rule, wives should instead gracefully accept His care. Sixth, wives should submit faithfully. A new unity is made in marriage, that of one flesh. The bond between husbands and wives should be higher even than that of parents with their children. And seventh, wives should submit respectfully. As the passage ends, let the wife see that she respects her husband. This can look like a lot of different things, but one that comes to mind is how wives should speak well of their husbands should honor them in how they speak of them, especially among others. How should husbands love their wives? The text gives us at least seven ways of how husbands should love their wives. And you'll notice that a lot of them are very similar. First, husbands should love responsibly. Remember, the word head suggests responsibility for Husbands need to recognize and be conscientious in their leadership role. This doesn't mean bossing our wives or abusing our position. No, Paul redefines being head as having the responsibility to love, to give ourselves, and nurture in such a way that benefits our wife. Think about how Jesus retained his authority even as he humbly stooped to wash his disciples' feet. Second, husbands should love humbly. That image of Christ stooping to wash his disciples' feet fits in very well here too. Notice that for husbands, it's not husbands demand obedience or force into submission. No, it's love. Husbands love in a Christ-like way. Love is a deliberate attitude that leads to action and is concerned with another's well-being. Rather than just an emotional response, it is an act of the will. Do we love our wives with such depth? Do we have her best interests at heart? Third, husbands should love sacrificially. Perhaps the most challenging and thought-provoking of this entire passage. As Christ willingly gave himself up, so we are called to display self-giving, self-sacrificing love. There is no room for oppression. There is no room for tyranny. Husbands are to lovingly sacrifice their own interests for the good of their wives. You know, we know deep down inside that we would be willing to lay our lives down ultimately for our wives. But the question we might need to grapple with is, are we willing to lay our lives down daily for our wives? This is a high bar indeed, but God's grace is sufficient. Not only should we love sacrificially, but we should love spiritually. Husbands, hear me out on this, husbands don't sanctify their wives. That is the work of Christ. But we should, in a way, help cultivate their faith and set the tone spiritually. Do we honor Christ? Do we teach the gospel? Is the gospel on our lips and displayed in our lives? 
especially in the home? Do we give ourselves to see our wives develop their full potential in Christ? I'm kind of picturing myself in the front row as I ask these questions because they are, they are penetrating and thought-provoking, challenging, convicting. Is your wife becoming more like Jesus because of you? Or is she becoming more like Jesus in spite of you? Not only should we love responsibly, humbly, sacrificially, and spiritually, but we should love deliberately. Deliberately. This means loving with the same care that we extend to ourselves and leading toward health and harmony. We should treat our wives the way that we ourselves would want to be treated and love them as our nearest and dearest neighbor. And we should love them tenderly, nourishing and cherishing them rather than being harsh toward them. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Sixth, husbands should love exclusively. Sound familiar? Husbands and wives are called to a bond, are called to bond and to blaze a new trail together. Are you holding fast to your wife? Or are you seeking satisfaction elsewhere? Itachiria Nainen writes this, Marriage makes a new unit, respectfully distanced from all other bonding, even parental bonding, and makes the husband and wife one. The bond between them is far deeper than that between parent and child. We sometimes forget this, and a man may be urged to honor his parents when he should, in fact, be serving his wife. Last, husbands should love enduringly. Jesus doesn't give up on his bride. He is faithful, and he endures with her to the very end. And so should we. Even as we explored these takeaways, which I'm sure bring up many thoughts and emotions within our own hearts, we feel their, the conviction behind these things. I'm sure you got a sense of just how similar, though, the calls to submit and to love really are. The core truth that we need to grapple with this morning is that in the spirit-filled marriage relationship, submission and love are two aspects of giving ourselves up for one another that are both patterned after Christ's self-sacrifice and are vital for a strong and enduring marriage. Submission and love are different enough to recognize the headship that God, God has given to the husband in the marriage relationship. But at the end of the day, the definitions of these two words are not all that different from each other. As we explore this passage in more depth, what does it mean to submit? It, it is to give oneself for another. What does it mean to love? It is to give oneself for another. And nowhere is this seen more powerfully than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The profound mystery of marriage reflecting Christ and His church is rooted in creation itself. From the very beginning, marriage was designed by God to re reflect Christ's relationship with the church. 
And yet we see and we feel how much we fall short of the ideal of marriage that is held up in this passage. We have an inner sense of the fact that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. We fail to submit to Christ. Wives are forced to step up and fill the void of leadership. Husbands sadly dominate and demand submission. But Christ does not give up on us. Christ, in his wondrous love for the church, redefines greatness as being a servant. He retained his authority as Lord even as he washed his disciples' feet. And he willingly gave himself in love on the cross and became the true and righteous Savior. He has set apart the church and is cleansing the church. And one day he will present the church as holy and blameless. Nothing will stand in the way of the church's unequaled beauty when Christ presents his bride to himself. All things will be brought together in unity. Marriage, more than any other human relationship, reveals God's purpose for the entire cosmos. The ultimate union of Christ and his church will be consummated at the wedding of the Lamb and the New Jerusalem. More and more chairs are being added to the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you acknowledging that this is a hard, a hard word. These are hard sayings. And with the sense of how, even with this beautiful picture of marriage, how much we at times fall short. We thank you, O Lord, for your great grace that you have lavished upon us through your Son. We thank you that you have not given up on us. That you sent your Son and that in this love he gave of himself. He has sanctified us and he is cleansing us and will present us before you holy and blameless. And so God, in the in-between, would you help us to live? Would you help us to live out this passage with, with grace toward one another, with, with compassion, with courage, with conviction? And we look forward to that day when we will gather around the table together, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray this in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.